0: This morning, James 1, verses 9 through 11. Let me read it for us to set our, our minds here. James writes But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so to the rich man the midst of his pursuits will fade away. It's been said that trials are the great leveler. That in the time of trials, there is no difference between the poor and the rich. With the, the death of a loved one, it doesn't matter the wealth that you have, you grieve nevertheless. That being said, it's also worth noting that both riches and poverty Our trials. Riches presents its own set of uh, allurements, its own enticements, its own temptations to sin, as does poverty. And so as James is describing how God uses trials in our life to affect us and mature us, he now turns his attention to riches and poverty. And then it's worth noting that this is perhaps the most ubiquitous of all trials. It captures everyone. You, in your own mind, are either rich or poor. I've never met someone who says, ah, it's just right. (laughs) The desire for social status and money are a powerful allurement to abandon wholehearted devotion to Christ. And how you respond to the trial of riches or the trial of poverty is a key revealer of the sincerity of your faith. The double-minded person, which James describes earlier in verses 6 and 7 and 8, he does not mature through these trials because his stability with the Lord ebbs and flows. Likely, it ebbs and flows based upon his financial standing. Perhaps you know this kind of person. The more money they have in the the checking accounts, the more God is glorious to them. Amen? (laughs) But when their balance drops, when the stock market crashes, when their 401k is depleted, then suddenly they question God's goodness. They get a bonus at work, and their credit cards are paid, and their car is paid off, and their mortgage is paid on time. Then God obviously is sovereign, good, and loving, and has a wonderful plan for my life. But when any of those change or are tinkered with, then suddenly it's legitimate to question the goodness of God. And this passage presents us with a person going through the trials of poverty, and with a person who goes through the trials of wealth and uh, you're probably thinking this hey if trials come to everybody to the poor and the rich alike i would way rather go through them as the rich person jesus please count me worthy enough to suffer in that way but you'll see this morning that perhaps the trials of the rich are eclipse even the trials of the poor person poverty is a trial because it produces envy, envy jealousy self-preservation The person who is poor can perhaps be envious of the one who's not, jealous of their things, covetousness. And perhaps even in extreme scenarios, he's tempted to doubt the Lord's provision. He he has his own self-preservation in mind. He needs food. He doesn't know where it's coming from. And so he doubts that the Lord does in fact care for his followers as he cares for the sparrows of the air. Riches, on the other hand, are a different kind of trial. They tempt you into self-sufficiency into thinking that you can do this yourself. They tempt you into arrogance. You're deceived into thinking that you have this wealth because of who you are and how hard you have worked. And don't people know that you deserve all that you have? And and of course, they tempt you to materialism as well. The rich person doesn't pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Or if they do pray it, they don't know what it means. It's just the introduction to the rest of their prayers. They can't remember the last time they prayed it and meant it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, of course, Paul says. And by it, many people, both poor and rich, have pierced their souls with great pangs of grief. I mean, listen, the temptation to love money, it doesn't discriminate upon your financial status. It traps the rich as well as the poor. Banks discriminate upon your income. Credit card companies discriminate based upon your income but the temptation to love money does not. It goes after the rich, it goes after the poor, but it manifests itself in different ways. So the abundance of cash or the the lack of it both present trials. And as James makes clear so far in this book, trusting in the Lord through your trials is, is how you grow up to become strong, spiritually minded believer. Some people feel like James 1 is just random verses stapled together as if James was drawing them like, you know, fortune cookies out of a hat and just pieced them all together. But there is a cohesion to this, isn't there? That consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, that you're supposed to take joy when you encounter trials because you know that behind trials, God is at work through them to, to will and to act according to his good purposes. He's growing you up So you respond to trials with endurance, trusting the Lord with your faith to get through the trial, knowing that as you grow strong, you will be lacking nothing. If you don't understand how you're supposed to respond, you pray for wisdom in verse 5. But you pray with wisdom, trusting that God is good in that work, not like the double-minded person who doesn't trust God. I mean, that person's not going to have any of his prayers answered because he's not a believer. Now, here is the most ubiquitous trial, poverty or wealth. As specific examples, you understand that you're born into this world as a little, bitty, tiny, cute baby. And through love and care and feeding, you grow up into a big, strong, Goliath-like person. The same is true with believers. You come to Christ as an itty-bitty, tiny, cute, little baby Christian. And through discipleship and the milk of the word, you grow up big and strong into a David-like Christian. That's what God is doing through trials, through wealth, and through poverty to cause you to grow up into the full mature image of Christ. This has not happened to the double-minded man whose trust in the Lord is as secure as his finances. But on the other hand, it does happen to every believer. Now, here's two specific ways. That God uses these trials to grow you in your faith. That'll be our outline this morning. And so it's a, it's a command to boast. That's the imperative in here, that you should boast. There's two ways to boast, so that Jesus is glorified through the trial of riches. These three verses, 9, 10, and 11, present two different ways to boast so that God is glorified through the trial of riches. Now, I use the word boast because that's the word James uses in verse 9. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory. That word glory, it's not the Greek word doxo, which is the word for glory. It's a, a different Greek word, which means to boast, to brag. The New American Standard renders it glory, probably because brag has negative connotations to it. But that's the word here, that you're supposed to boast in what God is doing through this. And there's two specific things which we'll look at in a second. But first, to explain the word boast. This is a common biblical principle. It's not that all boasting is bad. It comes from the Old Testament. James 9, verse 23, Yahweh speaking through Jeremiah, says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me that I'm the Lord and I practice steadfast love and justice and righteousness on earth, he says. And so if you're strong, don't boast in your strength. I mean, who grew you. If you're rich, don't boast in your wealth. I mean, where did that come from? But if you know the Lord, boast in that because the righteousness of the Lord fills the earth. This is the verse that Paul picks up 2 Corinthians 10:17 and just shortens it gives it his own message translation he just says but the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. I like that summary. Don't try that at Awana, kids but it works for Paul. But the one who boasts boasts in the Lord, okay? Galatians 6:14 but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I mean, Paul is elaborating on his command in Jeremiah that says if you're gonna boast, boast in the Lord that you know him. In the New Testament, how do you know him apart from his cross? And so Paul says, I will boast in the cross of Christ. And then Romans 15, 17, therefore Jesus Christ, I found reason in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. They're not limited just to the cross here. Paul's saying, and as much as I know the Lord in how things relate back to the Lord, as as much as my thoughts and affections and emotions are connected to the Lord, in that I will boast. Do all things to the glory of God. And as you're connecting the all things to the glory of God, boast in the glory of God known through Christ, his son, crucified and resurrected in your place. That's what you boast about. And so that takes you back to James 1, verse 9, that you're to glory, glory in your high position. So let's look at that first point. You're supposed to boast in the gospel that it brings the poor person honor. Boast that the gospel brings the poor person honor. You should be bragging boasting about the power of the gospel to bring dignity and honor to the poor. And this idea behind boasting, by the way, is that it amplifies. The reason you brag about yourself and that it's sinful is because you have some small accomplishment that you need to make it look bigger. And so you brag about it. You want to make sure everybody knows about it. But the reason you brag or boast about Christ and what he's done is not because it's a small thing that needs to be made big, but it's a big thing that needs to be made known. And so you draw attention to it, you magnify it, you amplify it. And specifically, you amplify that the gospel is is beautiful enough and life-giving enough that it can bring the poor person honor. Now it says here, the brother of humble circumstances. First of all, this word for humble circumstances, it is not the word for humility. Humble is a little bit of, of an unfortunate word there because humble in English has this positive connotation to it that it's disconnected from your social status. In English, the concept of humble is, you know, you think of yourself properly and you don't exalt yourself above others. And it's very easy for a rich man or a poor person to be humble in the, in, with that word. But that's not this word. It's not the word used by Jesus when he says meekness or it's not the virtue. This is an entirely different word. This word is, represents the personality, the persona, the way a person carries himself who is the lowest of all the slaves. There were some slaves in the Roman Empire that had a high position, that did walk around proud, that were arrogant. I mean, the slaves of Caesar's household walked around Rome like they owned the place because they owned the place. But that's not the normal slave experience, especially for the the middle class or in the roman empire the lower class slaves and there were some people in the lower end of the social spectrum that did have slaves perhaps acquired through uh, inheritance or through a debt and that person that slave that that lower class person hardly has any social standing but his slave even less he has no rights he has no property in the eyes of society he has no no dignity he's not worth anything and people look at him with scorn he has his Dignity, in many ways, beaten out of him. What does that person walk around like? How does he hold himself in the marketplace? What's his shoulders like? Picture the most beaten and oppressed and afflicted person you can imagine, not just through the physical torment, but through his status in society, where in the eyes of the world, this person is not worth anything. How does he walk? That's this Greek word right here that's translated to humble circumstances. It's, it's the, the beaten up person. Perhaps not even physically, although in many cases physically. Does he look you in the eye when he talks to you? He knows you wouldn't even notice him in the marketplace. You'd walk right by him, you'd bump him out of the way, you'd push him out of the way. Why wouldn't you? He's not worth anything. That's this word. It's the word that's often used in the Psalms to describe the, the lowest of the low in society. Mary uses it in her song, Luke one fifty two, to describe how God often will, will choose to bless those people so that the reversal of their fortunes is more magnified. The idea is that this person is a slave, he's a beggar, he has a poor life, he does not walk proudly in the marketplace to make it more modern. He feels out of place in Brooks Brothers. <laughs> He'd have to borrow a suit for a funeral. He goes to a funeral, he doesn't have a suit to wear. He has to borrow one. He doesn't know how to button the buttons. He hasn't done this before. He sits down to a meal at a nicer restaurant. He doesn't know which silverware is for what. He's never seen this before. So put yourself in that place. Just that little tiny example right there that you're sitting down at a formal meal in a formal place and you don't know how you're supposed to do things. You feel out of place. You're in the nice tailor shop and the person asks if you need help and you're, you're awkward. You're like, I don't really belong here. You feel, you almost blush because you're being given attention. You don't know how to approach yourself. I mean, that's in our middle class American status here. Go back to the Roman Empire and put yourself in the slave shoes. That's this person. Nobody's ever paid any attention to him. That's how low we're talking about here. And James says that person has come to faith in Christ. He's a brother, that's the word Adelphi at the start of verse uh, 9. The brother, it's, it's not gender specific. It's a gender inclusive, it's both boys, brothers, sisters. It doesn't mean every human being. This is confining it to the household of faith. So don't twist this verse to mean that, that God has the poor people have a special place in God's heart whether or not they're in Christ. This is not talking about those outside of the church. This word every time in the New Testament means uh, either an actual brother like Jesus and, and James are brothers, or it means those who are connected to Christ through faith. They're brothers with Jesus Christ. That's how it's used here, brothers and sisters of the Lord. So now you're dealing with the, the lowest of the low slave, beaten and spit upon by the world with no sense. of of dignity on their own outside of the church they've come to faith in christ now they're in the church and james says the gospel is powerful enough to have them stand up straight look you in the eye because they've been exalted by christ they're brothers with jesus their world is flipped upside down in the church that's how powerful the gospel is In the world, they're in poverty. Once they walk through the doors, they are exalted because they're in Christ. Their brother is Jesus. It doesn't mean their worldly fortunes change. They're not boasting about what's changed in the world. They don't, they're not, this is not the person who owns the, who's the son of the person who owns the house on top of the tallest hill. But what he boasts about is that he's now brothers with the person who owns the hill that house is on (laughs) He doesn't own a yacht. He's not the son of somebody who owns a yacht. But he's the brother of the person who owns the ocean upon which the yacht sits. And he can boast about that. He can boast that his brother is his savior. That his father is the father of the the world. And he delights that he has Christ now. That's the hope of glory. Christ in you. Again, this isn't saying that all poor people are blessed. This is not exalting physical poverty like the social justice warriors of our day. The phrase here, brother, makes it clear it's talking about the household of faith. And by the way, James approaches this from both angles. James was a brother of Jesus Christ. In the world, James was a brother, an actual physical brother of Jesus. He doesn't start James 1.1. He doesn't start by saying, James, a brother of Jesus. Remember, he starts by saying, James, a slave of Jesus because in the world's mind outside of the church jesus was a carpenter it's it's okay to be his brother and so james humbles himself by saying i'm actually his slave but for the person who really is a slave in the world he comes to church and he's the brother of the savior do you see why the gospel's beauty is magnified in this It's stronger than any social standing. It's not just that it's stronger than a social standing, it's strong enough to shatter the social standings of the world. The most entrenched prejudices of a society and of a culture are just rendered nothing by the beauty of the gospel. That it can turn the social systems in the world upside down and exalt the slave, in a sense, even above his owner of his owners outside of Christ. Do you see why James says, so boast in this? You want something to brag about? Brag about the beauty and the power of the gospel. Now James knows Jesus is not ashamed to call the slaves of this world his brothers if they're his brothers in Christ. You know, angels look down at people. You know this, right? (laughs) Angels can fly and they don't die and they can do all kinds of cool things. (laughs) But when God made the world and gives it over for dominion, he doesn't give it to angels, he gives it to people. It makes them out of dirt. And angels look down at people. I mean, they're made from dirt. Hebrews 2, Paul says that when Jesus comes, he doesn't come as an angel, he comes as a person. And then he says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. That he can look an angel in the eye and say, it's okay. I'm a human just like them so he can tell you stand up straight put your shoulders up it doesn't matter how angels look at you It doesn't matter how people in the world look at you it doesn't matter what your job is like in the world or the the low social standing you have in the world it doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in or or what your economic classes is that doesn't matter the gospel is strong enough to get you to stand up straight look the angels in the eye because you have an exalted position in christ this is what's behind the hymn writer. who says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. In Christ, you have a high position. So boast about that. Well, secondly, boast that the gospel brings the rich man Humility. Both that the gospel brings the rich man humility. The gospel doesn't just bring the poor man up. It also brings the the rich man down. This is why I mean trials are leveling experiences. The rich and the poor both have them. But we too easily think, okay, Lord, if both the rich and the poor have trials, let me go through trials with wealth. But that neglects the fact that trials are the leveling experiences, The trials make it difficult in many senses for the rich person to be saved because they have so many other things upon which to rely. The rich person goes to the trial and he can rely upon his wealth. He has other things to to fall back on. You know, the poor person gets in a car accident and his car is totaled. He's got to walk, he's got to ride the bus, or in the DC area, forbid that this would ever be so, he has to take the metro. And so he thinks, Lord, what are you doing through with me? What are you doing with me? But the rich person, he gets his car totaled. He just drives one of the other 17 cars he's got. He misses the lesson through the trial. Now, that's true at a material level. James's point and Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is that that is also true at the spiritual level. The Sermon on the Mount begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order, this is where the narrow gate begins. In order to come to glory, in order to go to heaven, you have to be humble. You have to be brought low. That's hard for the rich man to do. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It doesn't mean blessed are the materially poor or blessed are those who mourn like the world mourns. I mean, there's no blessing when you mourn like the world mourns. This is Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4. Do not mourn like those who have no hope. Mourning like the world mourns does not produce hope. But blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who recognize their own spiritual decay and depravity and mourn over that. Hard for the rich person to do because if they recognize their spiritual uh, depravity, they, they can mask it with other things. They don't mourn over it. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, What he means is that the way to spiritual riches, the way to glory is through spiritual brokenness. And that's difficult for the one with material comforts to prop them up. And so James gives an example of what he means by this down in verse 10. The rich man is to glory or is to boast in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he'll pass away. We don't have flowering grass here in Virginia. We have grass, and sometimes we have dandelions. but We don't have like the real, legit flowering grass. If you've been to Israel, you, you know this. Around the Sea of Galilee, you've seen the flowering grass. If you, I used to live in Los Angeles, so I have that in my mind. I know many of you have as well, so allow me a California illustration. <laughs> you know, it rains in California about once, in Los Angeles, about once every eight years. <laughs> and when it rains, the hills turn green. And the yellow flowers come out on top of the bright green grass. The yellow flowers just, they bold, they snap. The five that runs up north of Santa Clarita towards Six Flags Magic Mountain up towards Bakersfield, after the rain there, it's just entirely green with the yellow flowers everywhere. It's incredibly beautiful. And it lasts for about 15 minutes. You go to Bakersfield for the day, you're coming back down to Los Angeles, you come back to that same canyon and it's all dead. It was green in the morning, it looked like Ireland in the morning and by the evening it looks like you know, a bomb went off. It's on fire probably. <laughs> well, how does that happen? That's what James describes in verse 11. Now James is not just being poetic here, He's actually wants you to understand the biology and the, of how this works. For the sun rises with a scorching wind. And that word for, for wind there, it's not just the heat of the sun. It's this idea that there's the hot breeze that comes in. In California, it comes from Palm Springs. The, the hot desert funnels the hot air uh, back into Los Angeles. goes against the, the jet stream. The same thing happens in Israel. That's what James is familiar with. The, the deserts that are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jordan and Syria, those deserts will funnel their hot air over the Sea of Galilee and out towards the Mediterranean. It's just a scorching hot winds. The sun heats it up, the hot air moves, creating that hot wind. It withers, verse eleven, the grass. Its flower falls off. Literally it means its flower fails. The the flower just ceases to function and of course falls to the ground. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. That field went from bright green to brown. The flowers went from bright yellow to just nothing. The whole thing, you drove by it a few hours ago and he said, this is amazing. You drive by it now and this is awful. So too, he says, the man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So too, in the same way, just like that. Well, how is it just like that? First of all, the sun rises. There's vitality in the world. The kind of vitality that makes profit possible for the businessman. Businessmen prosper on market action rises and falls. You, you find the openings, and you can exploit them. And that's how you make a profit. Uh, uh, the cunning businessman doesn't thrive on stability. There has to be at least stability with growth. And the, the more changes there are, the more opportunities there are for profit, and a business person understands this. But that same volatility that makes profit possible presents danger, doesn't it? it presents danger. The sun rises. The sun is what makes the grass grow. But it also makes the wind blow. (laughs) And so the sun rises, dangers come, then the grass withers, society changes, the stock market falls, and your wealth is directly threatened. The housing market collapses, and the value of your house is now less than what you owe on it. That happens. Then the flower fails. Then one day, your personal wealth is gone. You don't have the money in the account anymore. The balance is zero. You get the update from your 401k plan, and it lost half of its value. And then a few years later, another half of its value. And There's nothing left. Now, to be clear, that's what happens to wealth. And it doesn't always happen in this life. I mean, the principle is that it often happens in this life. But the rule is that it always happens. You, at the very least, it happens at death. You don't get to take it with you, of course. And so at that moment, when you lose your wealth, in this life or in the next, if your beauty was defined by your wealth, your beauty is gone. If what gave you a sense of significance and a sense of standing in society was your wealth and your power, then it is gone and you are no longer beautiful. You thought that you dazzled the world. You you walked around, unlike the poor person we just talked about, you walked around with your shoulders upright. You walked around with confidence because of your high position. But when your high position goes away, then your beauty and your confidence also go away. You're withered. You're like the flower that has fallen off. There's nothing pretty about the field anymore if your beauty comes from your wealth. And so now what? It's all gone. Now, for those who are in Christ, they realize that's how wealth works. The person who is in Christ realizes that their beauty does not come from their wealth. And I hope that you see in that realization as much of a reason for boasting as the poor man who's exalted in Christ, because they're both equally remarkable, aren't they? That the gospel has the beauty to, to bring the slave high and the gospel also has the beauty to bring the rich person low. It's amazing what the power of the gospel can do. Now Jesus himself said it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. He says that at least three different places. James probably has in his mind the one in Matthew 19 verse 24 where he tells the rich man, leave all your stuff and follow me. The rich man does not want to leave all of his stuff because he likes it. And so Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to go to heaven. Remember, in the the Jewish world, you could tell uh, if you had God's favor by your wealth. The wealthy person was the one whom God was pleased. And so for Jesus to say that person can't go to heaven because he's too wealthy, I mean, that just blows the disciples' minds. (laughs) That'd be like saying that can't possibly be the ocean because it's got water. The disciples don't have a grid for what Jesus is saying. And what do you mean he can't go to heaven because he's wealthy? That's how you get to heaven. At the very least, it's how you can tell that someone's on their way there. If that's true, Jesus, then no one can be saved. That's what they say. And that's exactly what Jesus meant. I mean, Jesus is not saying that only it's only impossible for rich people to get to heaven but for other people it's just kind of hard but if you push enough the camel can fit through i mean that's not what he's talking about it's impossible camel needle doesn't fit can't do it no one can be saved and that's why jesus says you're exactly right with man it is impossible but with god all things are possible The beauty of the gospel is enough that people do get saved, even rich people, if you can imagine. So the rich person should boast that what he has is eternal. He boasts of the wisdom that he has, that he knows the deceptive nature of riches, If he knows that, he's ready for this truth. The gospel is strong enough to humble even himself. That's why it says verse 10, the rich man is to boast in his humiliation. He should boast that he's been brought low. His humiliation, now we're in the world, that's not the same word we used earlier. Now he's boasting in the in the spiritual brokenness, the spiritual bankruptness. He's boasting that he has been humbled. This is the, the boasting that Job can have at the end of his book. Remember, the devil comes to, to the Lord, and the Lord tells the devil, look at Job. And the devil says, of course, Job worships you because he's rich. Give anyone money, and they'll worship you. And so the Lord, tells Job, uh, the Lord tells the devil, fine, take his money away. See if he worships me. And Job does worship him. And so the gospel is magnified through that in that it's now evident that God is more glorified when Job has less, and that's the same hard attitude Job had when he had more. That's what the, the rich person should boast in. Whatever one's outward circumstances, it's the lowliness of the heart that's one of the chief distinguishing virtues. So ask yourself, why? Would you rather have wisdom or would you rather have riches? Would you rather have Christ or cash? And listen, most Americans cannot understand that question. They can't answer it. And I know you're very quick to say, I'd rather have Jesus. We sang that hymn, I'm in. I'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold and riches untold, sign me up. But I fear that you haven't really wrestled with that question because it is easy when you do have both. I mean, as I mentioned, the median income in the United States is $60,000. I would bet the majority, obviously the majority, it's a median. I would, I would bet that the vast majority of Emmanuel Bible Church, I would bet that the vast majority of Fairfax County makes significantly above the median income. And so it is very easy for those who make 60 or 70,000 dollars, very easy for you to sit there and say, "I would rather have Jesus than financial stability, because I have both." But ask yourself, what if you lost the financial stability? What if what if the housing market crashed again? After you just refinance your house, the housing market crashes. You now owe two mortgages in your house. You owe significantly more than your house is worth. That the president is successful in moving government entities out of D.C., draining our beautiful swamp. (laughs) Suddenly you can't move. You can't sell your house. Oh, it's also downsizing. Your job's not needed. Oh, the skills that you have over the course of your life, they're not needed either. Government contractors, no more. And the bank says, hey, that second mortgage, we want it back. You lose your house. You lose your job. You lose your cars. Now, at that moment, would you rather have Jesus or riches untold I mean you got to work through that now so that when it happens you're you can't do this on the fly while you're going through that you can't be wrestling through James 1 that's not going to do the trick then my friends you have to know this now and I'll tell you what the prosperity gospel has been mainstreamed in American culture where we wouldn't say, you know, I visualize my BMW 7 Series and name it and claim it in faith. We wouldn't say that. But we tolerate the Paula Whites and the Joel Olsteins of the world that sell that rubbish. And we consider them spiritual gurus who tell you that Jesus, you know what, Jesus loves you too much to take your house from you. He loves you too much. Because you've worked hard and because you're good and you've earned it and you have faith that he'll let you keep your house. He'll let you keep your car because you're a good person. You're a good Christian. Do you have faith in Jesus? Then he would never take your house from you. I mean, that's what those people say. And you, if you believe that, you have lost James 1, 10 and 11. You've lost the ability to say that the rich person can boast in his humiliation. Because you say, I boast in Christ, absent my humiliation. I hope you don't have the implicit idea that because you love Jesus, he would not take your house from you. I hope you don't have the implicit idea that because you love Jesus, he wouldn't take your cars or your job or your family from you. And I'm nervous, I'm really nervous about how people ha- think through this, especially in light of how you know, we responded to 24 hours without power. <laughs> People freaking out and don't have air conditioning for 15 minutes and you're moving to Oregon. If the person is rich, he should cease to pride himself on his wealth or rank. He should learn that the emptiness of all worldly distinctions is valuable, and all of your worldly wealth is also valuable only when you see it as a trust to be used for the service of God and the good for others. The poor person should see that the emptiness of worldly distinctions is valuable because it puts you in the family of brotherhood and sisterhood with the brothers and the sisters of Jesus Christ. James does not teach that poor people are easier to be saved or that that rich people are harder to be saved. He doesn't teach that there's, there's no such thing as a rich Christian and that every poor person has a special place in God's heart. He doesn't teach that. Instead, he recognizes that the utter transience of this life the potential suddenness of its ends means that you need to live each moment for the glory of Christ, boasting in the reversal of whatever fortunes you've received at your conversion. This is Hannah's prayer. The Lord loves Yahweh, is just typical Yahweh, to take the barren woman and give her children. Take the woman with much and bring her low to make the point that God can do. He can show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. He can have compassion to whom he wants to com- have compassion. He can harden whom he wants to harden. And salvation is better than riches. It's better to have Christ than to have cash. And the person who's come to faith in Christ can boast in that. There's a professor I, I know, not at Masters, but at a different school, who's extremely well regarded. He's a published author. He's not paid much by his school where he teaches or for his books for that matter. Just this past week, one of my friends was talking to a businessman and said, You know, I wanna I wanna follow after that guy's footsteps. I wanna be like that author. I wanna be like that professor. And the businessman tells my friends, Oh, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I'm twenty years younger than that author is and I make twice as much money as he does. You don't wanna follow that pattern. Well, let me tell you a little about that professor, something I know about him that most people don't. He's very good at a particular party game. Let me tell you what party game this is. You can open the New Testament and read him any verse in the New Testament. And he will tell you book, chapter, and verse. And then he'll roundly humiliate you by giving you another verse that has the same theme and seeing if you can do it. He's undefeated in this game. But you don't want to be like him, because if you did something different, you could make more money than he does. Ask yourself, would you rather be the rich man who doesn't know his Bible, or the poor man who's hidden the word of God in his heart? The brother who is poor may be glad, because God's called him to true riches. And the brother who is rich may be glad, because God has shown him his spiritual poverty Lord we're thankful that you have exalted yourself above all of us crucified and resurrected you reign you reign indeed nobody can buy your favor nobody has a standing above you or equal with you we are all your slaves at the same time Lord we are all your brothers I think of the joy that must be to some people who feel neglected by the world to recognize that their brother is the one who made the world. And I think of the joy that it must bring those who have power and influence in the world to know that at the end of the day, they're just your slave. What a profound reversal. What profound glory you give us through Christ. That's the message that we cherish, Lord, that our sins are forgiven. And that is, above all else, our treasure. We rejoice in that. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.